Like any family, my family has its own set of unique traditions and rituals and routines, and I want to tell you about one of them. Whenever we travel together as a family, whenever we go through an airport, we have this tradition of buying a tube of Pringles on our way home, when we're coming home. I don't know when this started. Maybe it was the first time the children ever were on an airplane or something, but Riley and Eva, they just think this is part of the vacation. When we get back to our airport, we got to get those Pringles. And, you know, it always seems like a good idea. You know, you're traveling and you're hungry and you just can't wait for that salty taste on your lips. So we go into the airport store and you overpay. You pay like 12 bucks for this dumb tube of, you know how it is. And we pop open the top and we start eating these things and it tastes really good at first. But, you know, after about a half an hour, you're just not feeling so well. You still feel hungry. You know, sometimes we buy two tubes of those dumb things. And I'm convinced that you could eat a thousand Pringles and still feel hungry after you've eaten it all. We keep doing it. I don't know why as a family. And I began thinking about this and realizing, you know, there are a lot of things in our lives that are like those Pringles. They seem like a good idea at the time. They seem like they'd be satisfying when you acquire them or achieve them or consume them. But ultimately, they leave you feeling empty. And the prophet Haggai, which we're reading today, he really has us consider this. And he gives us the solution. It's a simple solution. It's a shift in our priorities. And it sometimes is the hardest shift to make. But when we make it, we experience that satisfaction that all the material things in this world could never supply us. So I want us to look at this together. It's the book of Haggai. If you've closed your Bible, open it up again. Before we read the verses, I want to give you a little bit of context, a little bit of background. This story took place 2,500 years ago. It seems so ancient, long ago and far away, but I think it's one of the most relevant texts in the whole Bible. I want to show you this image to just set the scene a little bit for that long ago and far away context. Matt, can you put that image up on the screen? This here is a picture of Jerusalem at the time of Solomon's temple. This is kind of the height of the temple period before the exile comes. And I want to just point out a couple of things here. I like this picture because it shows all these homes where people lived. You see these, these dwelling places where the people would live. And if you go up the hill here in Jerusalem, you get all the way up to this structure up here. And that is the temple. That is where people went every single day to go worship God, to be connected with God. They believed that God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Not only would they connect with God, they would connect with one another in community. They had a really good thing going. They lived down here in this neighborhood, but they connected with God and each other in the temple. But then in 586 BC, this terrible thing happened to them. Some of the enemies of Israel came in and they sieged the city. David talked about this a little bit last week in his sermon. They tore down these walls. They ransacked the homes and then they did the most offensive, unthinkable thing. They destroyed the temple. They tore it down. This was so jarring and so offensive to the people of God. They really never got over it. And these enemy people, they grabbed the people out, they grabbed the Israelites out of their homes and they dragged them off to their nations where the people of Israel became exiles. Theologians call this the exilic period in biblical history. 
And while they were in exile, while they were captive in these other nations, this, I think, was the image that they had in their minds. They wanted to get back to Jerusalem and they wanted to rebuild this really good thing they had going. I think this is true because if you read some of the exilic prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, the people, they, they make a lot of vows when they're out there in exile. And they say things like, when we get back to Jerusalem, Lord, we're going to rebuild your temple. If you get us home, we will rebuild the temple that has been destroyed by our enemies. Have you ever prayed one of these prayers where you say, God, if you get me out of this mess, I'll put you first again. This is basically what the people were vowing, what they were praying when they were in exile. We're going to go back to Jerusalem. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to rebuild that temple. And then, by God's grace, they were led back to Jerusalem. Seventy years later, they came back and they started going into their old homes and they laid the foundation of the temple. They started out well, but they went to their homes and they did, well, probably what any one of us would have done. They got their kids all tucked away in their beds. Then they realized, okay, the kids are okay, but they kind of looked around and realized, you know, i got to feed these kids in the morning and the kitchen is still a mess. I better start working on that. While they were working on the kitchen, they realized the living room really needed some attention as well. And they heard about their neighbors up the street who had this really nice new wood paneling on the walls of their living room. And they said, hey, can you call the same contractor that they used? And they started working on the wood panels of their homes. Not this yet, Matt. Not this. Much later. It's okay. (laughs) And they started working on their homes, as probably any one of us would have done. And one thing led to another, and pretty soon it was 16 years later. And they hadn't completed the construction of the temple, and Haggai arrives on the scene. And look what he says. Look with me at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The time has not yet come. You see, this is their way of saying, Oh yeah, we're going to rebuild the temple. We'll get to that later. I have to finish this wood panel installation in my living room first. got to take care of my own. The time has not yet come to rebuild the temple. You see, they forgot what they vowed when they were in exile. Lord, we're going to go back. We're going to rebuild your temple. But then they got home, and they had to start working on stuff and protecting their family and taking care of their family. And pretty soon it became this me first prioritization, God second. It's not time yet to rebuild the temple. Then in verse 3, it says, Then the word came, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, that is the temple, lies in ruins? See, they said it's not time yet. And Haggai said, Let's talk about time. Let's talk about how we prioritize our time. Is it a time? For you to keep working, it's been 16 years. The temple is still in ruins. You vowed to rebuild it, but you've only been working on your houses. Haggai comes in like a referee and blows the whistle on them. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, what's so bad about 
putting my family first? What's so bad about putting my own needs first? Don't we all need to do that to survive in this world? What's possibly so wrong with it? Well, Haggai shows us in the next couple of verses the folly of that kind of thinking. Look with me in verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. This is an Old Testament way, basically, of saying, how's that working for you? I see you always working on your own stuff, always prioritizing your own needs, putting God second, third, fourth, maybe. Consider your ways. How's that working for you? He repeats the phrase in verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So that phrase is repeated twice. You've heard me say this before, but in Hebrew, there's no punctuation and there's no paragraph indentations or anything like that. So this is the Hebrew writer's way of bracketing something out for us to pay attention to. Consider your ways, consider your ways. And then everything in between those two phrases, he really wants us to pay attention to. And I said earlier, this is one of the most relevant texts in the whole Bible, especially this little part that Haggai brackets out for us. Basically, he says to the Israelites, and the Holy Spirit is saying to us today, how's that working for you? Always self-seeking, always trying to put your own needs first. Listen to these phrases in between. Consider your ways. Back to verse 5. The Lord says, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. In other words, you're working so hard. But what of meaning do you have to show for it? You've sown much but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. Haggai knows about the Pringles. <laughs> you drink, but you never have your fill. Have you ever seen someone who drinks as if the answer to life's mysteries are at the bottom of the next bottle? Maybe if I just have one more. You drink but you never have your, your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. I gotta be honest with you, I felt really convicted by this phrase this week. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. I told the pastors this embarrassing story. Uh, a couple years ago, I needed a new rain jacket. So I, I went to Lord and Taylor and I got the rain jacket that, that I looked really good in. <laughs> it was the one that I looked the best in. And I felt really good about the purchase. I looked awesome. And then we went to Alaska <laughs> for a family wedding. And we were out there in the elements. And I realized this jacket does not repel water. It does not keep me warm. It was a terrible purchase. It was complete vanity. I bought it because I looked good in it. You can see, actually, it's in my Facebook profile. That's how much I, I like how I look in this thing. <laughs> you clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And listen to this last phrase. He who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Do you ever feel that way no matter how much money you earn? It's like it's going into a bag with holes. No matter how much you spend, no matter how much you eat, no matter how much you drink, no matter how much you enjoy, there's a, there's a hole in the bucket. 
There's a hole in the bag. Nancy and I were invited a couple of summers ago to someone's vacation home. They're a lake house on Lake George. Beautiful place. Palatial. Unbelievable. Awesome space. The kind of house that when you go by Lake George in a boat looking at all the houses on the shore, you're, this one really stands out. It's like, wow. And I was out on the deck. The children were in the pool playing and the wives were on the lounge chairs chatting. And I found myself on the edge of the deck overlooking the lake with the husband, just him and me. And he kind of looked around a little bit to see if anyone else was, was within earshot. And he said, I'm so glad you guys came out to spend time with us. I just want to connect with you and I want to ask you questions. And I just have these thoughts on my mind. And I said, sure, what are you thinking about? And he said, he said I don't know. I just kind of thought maybe by this time in my life, I'd be part of a bigger story. And I thought, wow, if 99.9% of the people in the world could see this man right now, they think he's living a pretty grand story. But to him, it was empty. He had all the stuff a person could ever own. And it was all Pringles. None of it satisfied. And I simply shared with him something I know he already knows. He just needed me to remind him. I shared with him that we all have what we call a God-shaped hole. We have this hole in our bag that Haggai talks about. We have this hole in our soul that can't be filled by the most expensive gem or the largest house. Those aren't the right shape. We have this God-shaped hole, and when God comes into our being in a meaningful way, when we prioritize Him, then everything else falls into place. We are satisfied in Him. This is what I told the man on his deck. So this me-first way of prioritizing never satisfies So what does? How do we get God in, in there to fill that God-shaped hole? Well, it's written throughout the whole Bible. It's written in the law. It's written in the Gospels. It's written in the prophets. It's all over the place. I want to share with you just a couple of them. It's God's design, actually. In the Old Testament law of Leviticus, God gives this principle, this, this discipline called first fruits. And it's all about priorities, and it speaks to this deeper satisfaction that's found only in him. It's a fascinating law. You can read this later if you want to go home and read it. I just want to paint you the picture. This fascinating law where God says, when you harvest, when you have your grain in the fields and you're ready to, to harvest, to bring them home, to sell it at market and make your money, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the first fruit. I want you to take a, a sheaf of the grain. And I want you to bring it into the temple and wave it before the priest, wave it before the Lord, and give it to him as an offering, as a sacrifice. And this fascinating detail in the command, he says, don't eat any of it until you've brought it into the temple. You see, God's giving us new priorities here. In other words, I see you working hard, you're, you're harvesting the grain, you must be very hungry, you must be very thirsty at the end of the day out there on the farm, but before you satisfy your own longing, before you satisfy your own bodily needs, bring me the first fruit into the temple and give it to me. 
and trust me with the rest. This is so counterintuitive, isn't it? Before you get your paycheck, before you get your bonus, don't calculate all the places it needs to get spent in your own life, but first think, I'm going to give a first portion of this to God in worship. That's really what this principle is saying. The first fruit. Not me first, but God first. That's how we're designed to live. It's so hard to do, isn't it? Maybe think of it this way. Don't think of it as a law. I know in Leviticus, it's like, oh my goodness, God gives us these laws. I could hardly fulfill them. Instead of thinking of it as a law, think of it as a call back to love. First love. In the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to the seven churches that existed there at that time when John was imprisoned. And he has a word of encouragement for all the churches and a word of correction. And here's one that I think is relevant for us and for this text today. Revelation chapter 2. Jesus says to the church, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. That's the word of encouragement. Good job, church. You're working so hard. You don't have wicked people leading your church. And you're doing so much good work, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider, that's that same word Haggai uses, consider your ways. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. This is what we call the first love. Do you remember falling in love? Remember the first time you fell in love? What happened to your priorities when you were in love like that? You woke up every morning just thinking about the person. How can I rearrange my day to be with the person? That's first love. See, it's not about go out there and reprioritize your Google calendar. It's remember, you fell in love with God at one point. Do you remember that time when you first discovered the gospel, when you first gave your life to him, when you first realized how much he loves you? Your priorities fell in line then, didn't they? I just want to be with him. There's a young man in our congregation. He's a college sophomore. And he comes and visits whenever he's on break from school. He goes to the University of Southern California. And whenever he's in town, I want him to come to my Thursday morning men's Bible study because he's always such an encouragement to those guys. He comes back with reports of this ministry that he's involved in at the University of Southern California where these young people are coming to Christ and they're being discipled. It's really awesome to hear him talk and he was at our Thursday morning Bible study just last Thursday, and he said this fascinating thing that really speaks to this idea that we're looking at today in Haggai. He had been home for a month. You know how colleges give these kids a whole month off for Christmas break? Get back to work. Anyway, he was been home for a month, and he was reflecting to us that he had been on vacation for a month, but he was really tired. He said, I can't wait to get back to college. And he said, I think I know why I'm not tired there, but I'm tired here. 
He said, when I'm at school, I'm working hard. I have all these classes that I go to, and I'm involved in this ministry where we're evangelizing and discipling other students, but I'm not tired there. And I think it's because I spend the first hour of my day reading the Bible and praying when I'm there. He said, I haven't done that over the last month since I've been on vacation. And I'm tired. I'm worn out. See, what this young man was revealing was that when we give God our first priority, we give him the first hour of our day or the first portion of our paycheck or the first love in our hearts, then everything else falls into place. We have our deep satisfaction met first. This young man has all that he needs in the morning when he wakes up and reads his Bible. He's reminded of how much he's loved by God, how much God has provided for him and cares for him and calls him into mission in this world. And then he spends the rest of his day working hard, but not in a way that's missing something. I, I realize this sermon is a little convicting, maybe. You know, who among us has our priorities straight? I don't want this sermon to be like a, like a gotcha. I want it to be a call back to our first love. In this phrase that Haggai repeats, consider your ways, consider your ways, maybe you've done that a little bit this morning as you've heard this, you've considered your ways, you've considered your priorities, and you're feeling a little convicted that it's time to reprioritize. But before we conclude, I just want us to consider his ways too the ways of Jesus. I want us to consider what he has done for us. He asks us to put him first and everything else will fall into place. We'll be satisfied in our deepest longings, but he knows that in our sin, it's really hard for us to do that. We live in the flesh. We have this hunger all the time, this insatiable thirst, and we want to keep self-satisfying. And he sees all of that and he doesn't condemn us, but he says, you know what I'm going to do? If they can't put me first, I'm going to put them first. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He left heaven putting us first. He died in our place so that we might live. See what he did? He put us first. Consider your ways, but also consider his ways. And as we go to the table here in just a moment, Pastor Heather is going to lead us through communion. I want you just to consider for a moment all the things maybe that you've tried to fill that God-shaped hole that you're still feeling empty inside. And as you take this tiny little unassuming morsel, remember that what Jesus has given us that we remember in this meal will fill that hole. It will satisfy your deepest longings, your deepest need. Do you know what your deepest need is? Forgiveness. And this meal reminds us that we are forgiven in Christ. We were designed to be in connection with God and with one another, and this table does that. It reconnects us with God and with one another. So consider your ways, but consider his ways. Let me just pray for us. Holy Spirit, come and convict us, show us if we've been chasing after things that will never satisfy, but more importantly, show us, God, 
that you can fulfill what we need, what we desire. Maybe there's somebody here this morning who for the first time will fall in love with you and set their heart for you and start living with new priorities because of it. Maybe there's somebody here who just needs to rekindle that first love. Will you, Holy Spirit, come and just provide that love for us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.